Well, uh, this uh, last few days I spent uh, up at uh, Cedar Springs with a uh, retreat group from uh, some of our churches down around the Puget Sound and had a good time uh, fellowshipping with them and teaching God's Word to them. A couple of pastors that I've known for years. One of the pastors I met when I was a college student and sang in his church. And uh, What's that? He still had me come. Yeah, that's an interesting story in itself. But uh, I took a few minutes to tell them about the BNN and the work that we're doing and uh, had some good conversations. Um, one grandmother said, tell me about Camp Gilead. My kids, my grandkids need to go to camp. I said, well, I'll tell you all about camp. And I told them all about what it has meant to us as a church, not only in camping, but also in, in training young people to do the Lord's work. So... So that's the kind of fun stuff I get to do uh, in, in, in the new ministry God's called us to. In the next three months, um, I'll be setting up an office, taking my next doctor of ministry class in Pennsylvania, speaking at a family retreat for one of our churches in Oregon, spending time in Grandview with Tony Sanchez, attending the national conference of our fellowship of churches in the Chicago area, travel to Guatemala to visit a ministry, Spend a couple of weeks in Oregon visiting pastors and speaking at the installation of a new pastor. And in between those events, we'll work on some newsletters and promotional things and whatnot. So don't worry, uh, I won't be uh, sitting on my hands too much. <laughs> That's kind of a snapshot of what our future ministry will, be look, will look like. But it doesn't start till I finish here. Uh, and they say a mother's work is never done, and that's true, but neither is the work of a pastor. The Bible is so thick and rich with truth that it's impossible to adequately teach the whole thing in any kind of depth in a lifetime. There are always newer Christians who need to learn the basics. There are always sheep wandering off into danger. There are always young men who need to grow up into leadership. There's a constant stream of new lives to celebrate and of past lives to remember. There are new families to help get started and struggling families to help restore. So how does one preach his last sermon? First of all, with a box of Kleenex, with a couple of props. But he does it the same way he's preached every other sermon, by trying to perceive what God would have him to say and then closing the Bible and leaving the work up to God as he does every Sunday. The one difference you'll notice today is that I want to share about, uh, in a very personal way, God's call to steps of faith and how answering those calls has grown my faith in God. God has shown himself true and good over and over and so in a sense, I, I, I want to share my testimony. I'm, I'm sure I'll preach just a little bit as I work my way through some things. But I want to share a series of scriptures that have become precious to me over the years and challenge you to take steps of faith, whatever those steps of faith might be in your life. So I want to start in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, with a man who was called to take a huge step of faith. 
There are some notes in your bulletin. Uh, this is not really a note-taking sermon. Um, this is, I'm not gonna, there's not going to be any theology lesson and uh, slick application today. There's not going to be a PowerPoint. Um, there might be a couple things that will be valuable to you, and I hope when you hear those, you'll write them down, and I hope the Lord will use those in your life. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Just before verse 10, in the preceding section is when Saul, you know, came to be called the Apostle Paul. That's when he got saved. Now here's what happens next. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Hey, you're going to get to go do a miracle, Ananias. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind or to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. I can relate to Ananias. Now, you know, in our day... Interestingly, a lot of people would like to tell you they hear direct messages from God, but when Ananias heard a direct message from God, what was his response? (laughs) No! It was just like Moses. God talked to Moses, and, and Moses said, you've got the wrong fella. Ananias did not want to do the Lord's work. In his case, he felt it would put him at physical risk. He said, this fellow arrests people and throws them in jail and does worse to them. And he said, "Uh, I'm not up for that. Um, I can relate to Ananias being scared to follow the Lord. Uh, God was calling to me all of my life, and I was offering excuses. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Just a a little ways down in your New Testament there. Romans chapter 12. God was calling to me in many times and in many ways. And uh, in a lot of my life, I I believe that I came to faith in Christ as a young child. But I didn't come to walk with him. And and the call really revolved around these verses in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I, God only knows how many times I heard those verses. Um, back in the day when I was going to Camp Gilead, um, they didn't tell speakers the topic they were to speak on. Like they didn't say, this year we're talking about creation, This year we're talking about the Exodus, as they do now. And so the speakers almost always 
hit on these verses. You need to dedicate your life to the Lord. You need to live your life for the Lord over and over and over. And, and um, at first I didn't understand, and later on I didn't want to obey. I did not want to do what verse 1 says, to put my body on the altar of sacrifice. Paul is drawing from the image of the Old Testament sacrifices. They would bring up an animal. The animal would be killed, and part of it would be put onto the altar and burned. Part of the blood might have been offered on, the, uh, on a different altar. And, uh, and so when the animal was offered, it was once and for all, done and gone. The animal has no more life of its own. And so the image Paul is trying to bring forward is God wants you to put your life on his altar. And I heard that message, and, you know, at times I wanted to do it, and at other times I didn't quite feel like I understood how. And, and then when I got into Bible college, I, I really began to understand that God was calling me to give him my whole life with nothing held back. And uh, I, for my whole 18th year of life, I bargained with God in an attempt to just give him part of my life. You know, I, I began to think, okay, I, I want to live for the Lord. I need to live for the Lord, but not all the way. That's just, uh, that's just too dangerous. Uh, once I got over that hurdle and began to live for the Lord, one of my early assignments was to preach. And uh, at a, a singing group would get up and sing, and then at the end of it, one of us guys uh, had to give a 10-minute sermon. You'll be thrilled to know I only spoke for five minutes <laughs> because I couldn't figure out what I was supposed to be saying and how to say it. But eventually, I, uh, eventually I got the message, and eventually I came to use this illustration this is a tennis racket my dad bought me in high school, totally blew me away, came home with this beautiful tennis racket. I was on the tennis team and uh, loved playing tennis a lot, and uh, he brought this great racket home and uh, you know, used it and enjoyed it. And if you're going to give God your whole life, you give him your whole life. It's just that simple. Uh, you put it at his disposal. But what I wanted to do for my whole 18th year was to give God most of my life. And obviously, any of you who have played tennis know that occasionally you do hit one off the wood. <laughs> um, it might be possible to play tennis with a racket like this. I've never tried and I don't care to because... Um, this is, the, this is called the sweet spot on the racket. All of the rest of the edge is no good for hitting the ball. You need to hit it right in the sweet spot. That's why they came out with round-headed rackets, because the sweet spot was more uniform all around the racket. But when you offer God something less than your whole life, you don't realize it, but what you're doing is eliminating the sweet spot of service to him. And he can't use you, and he won't use you, and he won't accept it. If you're a child of God, he says, give me the whole thing. And uh, boy, I didn't want to do that because I was afraid of what God would tell me to do. And, uh, and I know I've shared this before, but I'm, I'm sharing it again because uh, 
It's how God led me along. I, I was afraid to be dedicated to him. I was afraid of the life he would lead me to because I was just sure he was going to want me to be a pastor or even worse, a missionary. That would have just been the worst in the world. And I've been both, and I'm about to, technically, I'm going to become a missionary again because my part of the support that we will receive will be received missionary style. But finally, I said, okay, God, here's the whole thing. Because what I came to understand was God wants to give us, he does ask for the whole life, but what he gives in return is a whole life. And in my way of thinking, that amounts to the joy and peace of Christ in whatever you're doing, in wherever you are. I came to learn this definition of faith. Faith is obeying God even when you don't want to. God doesn't say you should wake up in the morning and feel like obeying. He doesn't say you should feel like taking a step of faith. He says you should take a step of faith. And like Abraham, he said to Abraham, now you go to a certain place and when you get there, I'm going to bless you. That's how the faith life works. God says, Dave, give me the whole thing. I'm telling you, it'll be good. Okay. And I'm telling you, it's been good. I put my life on the altar. Now, I will also tell you that the dedicated life It's a little bit like this sometimes. And I'm not telling you I've lived perfectly for the Lord for the last 41 years. But that's my decision. That's where I have to be. And that's where I strive to be. Because that, that is the place that makes life worth living That is the place that honors the Lord who died for me. One of the things I really didn't understand about the dedicated life is verse 2 of of Romans 12. I didn't understand how to live it out. It says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I, I just didn't understand what it meant to grow in the Lord. But in God's grace, he led me early in this walk of of faith to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. And for a long time, this was just a key, key verse in my life. Peter, um, you know that I've referenced the first chapter of this book many times. Um, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us great and exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. I haven't referenced the end of this book so much, nor the middle. This book was written to protect people from false doctrine. In chapter 2 and 3, he really gets into some things about false teachers and such, but that passage on growing in Christ is to protect you from false teachers. If you grow in Christ, you will know the truth from a lie, and you will know God's blessing from the false blessing of the world. And so when the false teacher comes along and offers you some false truth or some false hope, you will be wise enough to say, no, that isn't right. So the growing in the Lord is the key to protecting yourself. 
He, he talks about what it means to grow in the Lord, and then he goes into the section on false teachers, and then the coming of the Lord, and he wraps it up in verse 18 with, these would be the last words Peter ever wrote uh, of note, and he says, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that there's going to be challenging times, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But grow. The thing that I came to understand so clearly was, God's will for me is to grow in the Lord a little bit every day, every week, every year. Grow, grow, grow. The life of faith is a growing life. I committed myself to learning what God wanted from me and doing it. And trust me when I say this has been a stretching experience. That's what the life of faith is. Um, I don't remember what I said in that first sermon that was five minutes long. I, can still, I still have a snapshot of looking out at the church, of standing up there, me and my little Bible looking at the church, and there wasn't that many people there. The church wasn't any bigger than this. And thinking, wow, Dave, this is all on you, man. Oh, wow. But I learned how to talk longer. (laughs) The faith life is a growing life. (laughs) Problem is, when you get to this age, you got so many things rattling around your head, you have to decide what not to say rather than what to say. Early on, I discovered another faith-encouraging passage in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. In the early part of Mark chapter 10, Jesus uh, spoke, uh, or in the middle part, he spoke to a man who was rich. And uh, he said in verse 21, Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was a rich man. And then, verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus explained a little bit more. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who can be saved? You know what they're thinking? Who's going to give up their dependence on money in order to get saved? They just thought that would be the greatest miracle of all. Verse 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Marvelous truth about preaching the gospel is God makes people hear it, even those people who are dependent on money or stuff or whatever. Verse 28, though, here's Peter. You know it's coming with Peter. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all and followed you. (laughs) You know, they literally left their nets, their fishing business, and literally physically followed Jesus. Okay? And so Peter says, kind of swelled up with pride, we've left all to follow you. 
He doesn't say it, but he infers, what do we get? Great job, Peter. Verse 29, though, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, God is not saying there that in order to follow him, you have to take a vow of poverty and celibacy. That is not in the Bible. That is not God's will. But what he is saying is this, there are times when God calls you to let go of something in order to serve him. And he says, if you have to let go of something in order to serve me, I will take care of you. I will pay you back. He says here a hundredfold. Now, in my life, and really this is where it begins to be our life, as we... As we uh, As we started talking about marriage, I said, now I'm going to be a pastor. That's what God's called me to do. And so if we proceed from here, you need to know you're going to be a pastor's wife unless God does something different. And she said, okay. And that means means you don't get to choose where you live. You don't get to choose where you go to church. You don't get to choose how far away you live from your family. You don't get to choose how much you're going to get paid. It means you go where God calls and you trust him to provide. Now, I'm not trying to puff us up today. Believe me, I'm trying to puff God up. God has called you to serve him too, and there will be sacrifices he asks you to make. They'll be different than our sacrifices. But initially, God called us to a place called the Nooksack Valley Baptist Church, which was not at the end of the road, but you could see it from there, as far as we were concerned. Go Go to the end of civilization, Bellingham, and turn right. And... And I have to tell you, this promise is true. Uh, My parents lived in Seattle at that time, and uh, my mom was working, and my dad was working some. Sue's folks lived in Wenatchee, and uh, as you think about family and connection and so on, um, there's a challenge there. There's something to let go of, but God was true to his word. And I would just give you one example of that, and that's in the birth of our twins. Um, I remember a day when the doctor said, and this, this was back before ultrasounds were common and regular, he said, I want you to go have an ultrasound to rule out the possibility of twins. So we went and had the ultrasound and came back, and I told the doctor, that did not rule out the possibility of twins. <laughs> Yikes. I thought having one kid was a challenge. Now we're going to have two at a time. But the Lord was already at work. 
providing for us. And the pastor went to a lady in the church who had had twins and said, what can we do to help them? We didn't have to ask for help. The church gave us a shower and gave us enough paper diapers to last six months. Worth a small fortune, obviously. Gave us all kinds of other things, all kinds of clothes. But probably the most important thing they did was the ladies of the church were organized by the wife to where they came to our house four days a week for six months to help Sue. Um, what do they call it when you get time off to have a baby? Uh, maternity leave. My pastor didn't know what that was. One of the conflicts he and I used to have was over taking a day off much less the thought that I'm going to stay home and help her with the kids. But God provided. Ministry went on, and uh, the Lord provided. And that's just the beginning of God answering this promise. None of our kids even got married in the town we lived in, much less chose to live near us until we moved here. And God worked out a series of circumstances to bring them close. And that's been a wonderful blessing and to have my parents here close. But what I want to tell you is this. If God calls you to let go of something for the sake of the gospel, that's what this is about. Don't, don't fail to trust him in that because he will provide for you whatever you need. God promises to replenish our supplies when we give to him. Well, God kept calling me to trust him in greater and greater ways. Um, the first assignment that I had as in the ministry at Nooksack was teaching junior high boys. I had 12 junior high boys in the furnace room where there were no windows, and there were two large furnaces that went on and off. And... Uh, I, maybe God was trying to see if I really wanted to stay in the ministry. I don't know. Later on, I became a senior pastor, and all of a sudden I realized I've got to preach twice every Sunday and uh, do a couple of other things in the middle of the week. And, uh, wow, I, I, you know, as a youth pastor, I struggled to do less than that by a long shot. One of the great faith-stretching things God led me into was police chaplaincy. I became a police chaplaincy through the invitation of an ungodly sheriff. The sheriff had gone to a seminar, and he heard what police chaplains can do, and he came back and invited all the pastors in Morrow County to come to a meeting, and we listened to this chaplain talk who he'd hear, heard talk, and when the chaplain got done in an hour, he said, you're all chaplains, boom. Everybody, everybody who wants to be a chaplain is. And I thought, okay, let's see what happens. Do you know what the number one thing is that, that used to be why sheriffs and chiefs of police want chaplains? Death notification. Police officers, especially unsaved police officers and firefighters, hate to tell anyone their loved one has died. 
And the reason for that is pretty obvious. They're not comfortable with death, period. I know you say, well, they're out there with all these people and all these situations. That's not death. That's pre-death. But once the death happens and once the grief starts, they don't want anything else to do with it other than the legalities and so on. And so um, I became a chaplain, and sure enough, a call came and said, we need to go to this house and tell these people that their loved ones died. Got a police officer and went over there and did that. That is an odd thing. I am not somehow created in some special way so that uh, that's no big deal. But it's a faith-stretching endeavor. Um, my faith has been strengthened immensely in a kind of backhanded way through dealing with every kind of crisis you can imagine. The way my faith has been strengthened is this. I have learned beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has the only solutions for life. I've counseled a female pastor. I've counseled a Buddhist. I mean, in a crisis setting. I've been with people of all stripes and all kinds of ways of thinking. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you, (laughs) when I left Bible college, I believed God had the answers. And at this point in my life, nearly 40 years later, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has the only answers to life. As my ministry progressed, I began to do counseling, began to learn how to counsel people, how to help people with uh, all kinds of life challenges. And again, it was a faith call. Um, I I don't know what you think it's like for a pastor to preach God's word, to counsel somebody, to, to, to sort of stand in the place of God. You know, the British word vicar comes from the word vicarious, and it means the guy who stands in for God, you know, sort of the human representation. But I'm here to tell you it's a, um, it's a faith-inducing thing. <laughs> but what I've learned by talking to people from God's word is God's word has the answers and God has the power to change people. I had a man in my church in Boardman, Oregon who had been trained to be in the ministry but had never become a pastor and that was his goal. And he was an electrician and uh, uh, worked you know, in a heavy industry and and he used to go and preach in a lot of churches when they needed a pastor to preach. And he, he told me one time his, um, his philosophy of ministry. And his philosophy of ministry was this, don't raise your hand and don't say no. What did he mean? He meant don't go around telling everybody you can do this and you can do that and inserting yourself here and inserting yourself there. He said, but when God calls, don't say no. That's where the faith element comes in. A lot of people think I'm, not a lot, some people think I'm not that smart for taking this job that I'm taking because they think 
maybe there's not a big future for the Baptist Network Northwest. They're wrong. Because it's God who has clearly led, so God has some things to be done. Don't raise your hand and don't say no. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 9, where we started this little journey. We're going to read the the second half of the story here with Ananias. Acts 9, starting in verse 16. God says, I'm going to show Paul or Saul how much things he will suffer for my namesake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached, he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem? What was the result What do you suppose was the result of this event in the life of Ananias? Okay, clearly we see the result in Saul's life. Ananias, God God says, Ananias, go down there and lay your hands on this fellow. He's going to get... He's going to get, uh, you know, his blindness will be removed. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit. This was in this interim change time when when God did some things that way in terms of completing Paul's salvation. And he took some food, he got strengthened, and immediately went and preached to Christ. Why was he able to do that immediately? Because he knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand, having been trained in a, a Jewish rabbinical school. And now he had the last piece of that puzzle, and he went out and just preached. Can you imagine Ananias standing in the back of the synagogue watching him preach? Can you imagine Ananias going to church (laughs) and people saying to him, I heard you went over and laid hands on him and got his sight back and got filled with the Holy Spirit, went out to preach. Is that right, Ananias? Yeah. Man, it's the craziest thing. I can't believe it. This guy who was persecuting God's church is now preaching Christ. And when it finally sank into Ananias, I'm sure there was a temptation to pride. But I'm sure also it was like, wow, look what God did through me. What an amazing thing. How do you think Ananias responded the next time God asked him to do something? I think he went, okay. Okay, maybe I'm one of God's special forces. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Now think about this. What would it have been like for Ananias if he'd have said, no, absolutely not to God? 
Well, I'm confident God would have went over and gotten somebody else to go do the job. Just like with Moses, God said, okay, I'm going to use Aaron. And, and God wasn't, God knew that was coming with Moses and Aaron. That wasn't a surprise to him. But what if Ananias had said, nope, not going to do it. And then imagine him standing in the back of the synagogue. Man, I could have had a part in his life and ministry. You can say no to God to an extent. At some point, God's not going to take it anymore. But what blessing might you be missing? What is it that God's calling you to do? God doesn't speak to us the way he did to Ananias. He speaks to us this way. The vast majority of everything we need to do is right here. And it's either specific or it's the application of what's here. You know, me, me saying yes to God's leading to preach really is based in God's truth that somebody has to preach and then the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The vast majority and the stuff that we struggle with most to, to live by faith is the commands of God's truth. God calls us to apply his truth, starting with dedicating your whole life and letting God lead you where it will. You don't need to know the end from the beginning, only the one who is calling you. As a young pastor, I couldn't have ever imagined the next three months of my life. What I just read to you, the stuff I'm going to do. I couldn't have imagined having this responsibility that I'm going to have and this, this ministry opportunity. It just, just like, it just be just the craziest thing you could have ever said to me. All I could think of as a young guy in the ministry was, how in the world am I going to get a devotional ready for the youth group tonight? Man, that was the biggest challenge I had. You don't need to know the end from the beginning. You just need to know the one who is calling. I can't imagine missing any of the blessings I've had on this journey of faith. Any of the blessings that we have had. My last word to you is this. Follow the Lord with no exceptions and your faith will never stop growing. Mary Ann's going to come and Sue, I'm going to sing a song as I conclude my thoughts today.
Heavenly Father, I do pray that my name will be forgotten, but yours will be remembered. I do pray that I pray that I will always take the steps of faith you call me to take. And I pray that for my people, your people here pray that they will not shrink back from the challenging calls, whether it be the call of Scripture or the call that you send their way through some other person, some invitation to ministry. I pray that that they will take those steps and that their faith will grow. And I pray that as the years go by, it will be our joy to fellowship together and to see the growth in both of us as we see how you've worked in our lives. Thank you for your transforming truth. I pray that it'll do its work today as it always does. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.